0: Hello and welcome to the first BBC History Magazine podcast of 2012. I'm Rob Attar, Deputy Editor of the magazine. Happy New Year to all our listeners. Don't forget, BBC History Magazine is on sale in all good news agents and on subscription. Visit our website, historyextra.com, for more information. Or you can follow us at twitter.com forward slash historyextra or facebook.com forward slash historyextra. Coming up this week, we
1: have... I think what he is aware of is the power of the monarchy as a symbol, as a unifying factor. Uh, He plays that card, I think, very well. That was Dennis Judd on King
0: George VI.
3: And the gold that comes out of that region is of an incredibly high quality and huge amounts of it too.
0: That was Gus Casely Hayford on the Asante Kingdom. George VI, second son of King George V, came to the throne in 1936 after his brother Edward VIII abdicated. February the 6th 1952 was the date that King George VI died. And as we approach the 60th anniversary of this event, editor Dave Musgrove has been speaking to Professor Dennis Judd to find out how this man went from the shy stutterer as portrayed in the film The King's Speech to the statesman who helped keep the nation's morale high in the Second World War.
4: We're talking about George VI, um, king of Great Britain, Ireland, and sometime emperor of India as well, who's um, recently sort of come back into the frame because of the king's speech, the film that that explored his stutter. So the first question is... um, how important a figure is George VI? Does he deserve to be back in the limelight,
1: do you think? Well, yes, I think he does, and, uh, and not because of his stutter, <laughs> although that was very interesting, obviously, and the film dealt with it, I think, brilliantly. But I think that the main point is that <clears throat> when um, his uh, elder brother, e- Edward VIII, abdicated, you know, there was, there was a lot of people who thought, well, you know, is, is the monarchy got anywhere else to go? Maybe maybe this is the beginning of the end. Um, And for somebody who was, I think, very painfully shy, had a stutter, um, was not perhaps, you know, the most brilliantly intelligent of people, I think he, he surprised everybody by the very effective way he dealt with his new post, despite lots of misgivings at the beginning. And I think he, in a way, together with his wife, Elizabeth, and of course their two daughters, rescues the monarchy in many ways from uh, from doldrums from and remember the, you know the mid 30s there's, there's lots of um, socialists and communists so the communist parties on the rise, partly in response to fascism. not everybody is enamored with the with the monarchy at all, but I think he in a way he saves it D- does he does he build on what George V did because
4: George v was uh, you could see him as a modernizer in some way mm. is, is in trying to bring the monarchy into into the 20th century does, does he does he sort of build on on what George V did or, or does he go a different way
1: well i mean he's very interesting he he's a- in many ways, intensely conservative person, um, although he was quite open-minded, I think, about, say, the new Labour government of 45 to 51. Um, and to call him a moderniser might, might be pushing it a bit, but but I think what he is aware of is the, um, is the, is the power of the monarchy as a symbol, as a unifying factor. Uh, he plays that card, I think, very well. I mean, the press and the media present him and uh, Queen Elizabeth and the, the two daughters, the two princesses, as, you know, an ideal nuclear family, very like you. You know, he's interested in collecting stamps and they have they pat dog's heads. And, you know, they, they seem to sometimes to lead an ordinary life, even though, of course, they are, in a way, fabulously rich and uh, with an extraordinary lineage. Um, so I, I think um, he... The media... A- and he worked together in such a way that um a much more cozy domestic um reassuring image of the monarchy is presented a little bit like albert and victoria you know a monogamous couple uh, well-behaved children um doing their duty not messing about you know if there's no drugs or drunkenness or the sort of rather scandalous behavior which um edward VIII got up to at various times when he was prince of wales it's um it's, a, it's, a, it's in a way a clean sweep and a fresh start. A rather puritanical image in some ways, but remember if that coincides with the war when people were inevitably going to cut down on living standards and have hardships, that fits in very well. And what about the,
4: the, the shyness and the stuttering then? Because how does mm. that play with him being sort of in,
1: in cahoots with the media and presenting that image? Because that must have been quite difficult. But it was difficult, and I think that um, when it seemed inevitable that Edward VIII would be forced to abdicate there were people in the establishment as you know who had grave misgivings about <coughs> about george the sixth they thought he was um, in some ways quite a backward p- personality that he had no sort of vivacity that he would uh, he was dull um that he might not be up to the job um and of course the stutter was part of that because a lot of people had heard these painful um pauses and speeches in you know, almost inarticulate sort of um presentation sometimes but lionel Logue does make a really big difference and through various techniques and breathing properly and all sorts of other things i think it's it's more like therapy in a way it's more like psychotherapy that Logue gives him as well some of his battered confidence is is rebuilt and um he emerges from all this with some um, a far surer touch than he would have done if Lionel Logue had not given him um, lots of speech therapy. And that that moment that, that
4: you see in the King's speech, mm. in which it, it is based on real life, where he, he gives this the this, the closing address at the British Empire Exhibition in um, uh, 1925. Yes. Is that mm. um, w- was that an important moment? Were people did people listen
1: to that and think? crikey, this this chap doesn't sound too good? I think they did. I, I think it was a disaster. And of course, Logue was in the crowd mm. and Logue heard the speech and Logue turned to somebody and said, I think I could help that man. So Logue is already thinking, this is terrible, but I can make a difference. I think it was a bit of a turning point, yeah. Mm.
4: Do we do we know where this stuff came from? Was it because he had such a... A, a strange childhood in a way I
1: think it was because he had a strange childhood I mean he um, in, in some ways he had the worst of of both parents, I mean he had an extremely um, dominating and um, irascible and um, quite frankly bullying father, George V was, was a tyrant really to his children in many ways um, he could be, you know loving in a gruff sort of way but I don't think he really gave them a great deal of loving support and Queen Mary, George VI's mother you know, it's rather a well cold and distant personality. Very little warm physical contact between them, uh, and I think that um, George, the sixth elder brother, Edward, who becomes, of course, Edward the Eighth, is is like the star in the family. I mean, he does have vivacity. I mean, I don't think he's very bright either. I don't think he's an amazing intellect or anything. But I think he um, he outshines George VI all the time. As, well, as they're growing up, George VI is the, the slightly backward, um, inarticulate, um, not very confident younger brother. So I think all these things conspire to um, make him unsure about presenting himself to the world. And a stammer or a stutter is exactly that. The person who suffers from it is unsure about relating to the world because they have misgivings about their own quality.
4: Mm. But then... Yeah. Uh-huh. I guess a formative experience for him would have been his his time in the navy. Yes. Um. In hmm. the in the 1910s, sure. um, when he went off to, to naval college and, sure. and presumably had a chance to prosper and flourish. And what I didn't realize was he actually he was actually at the Battle of Jutland. Yeah, absolutely. In CCC, no, it, which, it, which must have been an important
1: moment. It was. He was in one of the, of the gun turrets, uh, helping f- fire at the German fleet. No, I think this is one of the great moments of his of his early manhood life. Really, that he, he did actually um, see sea service in this way. There's no question about him being, you know, quite courageous and um, doing his duty and being an efficient naval officer. I think he was quite good at that. Mm. Um, but that seemed to be at one level all he was destined to be, not much more than that. And then suddenly circumstances promote him to this, almost the most famous job in the world, really. Yeah. How important was was the fact that he actually saw active service when he became king? Did did that oh. give him something that, that Edward? Um, uh, well, Edward did see active service. In fact, he, uh, he was, he, he was uh, in, the, in the army in the First World War. I came across a bit of diary he wrote the other day. I mean, his pathetic, cramped hand, sort of very boring, really. We marched 10 miles, it rained all the time, sort of thing, and that's it. So he did see service, but George VI, I suppose, was, was slightly more glamorous, really, the Battle of Jutland and all the rest of it. And I think it was terribly important. I think the fact that he is frequently portrayed as wearing naval officers' uniform, It's very important. And during the war, it's an incredibly reassuring symbol. There's Churchill in his rather sort of outre, baggy, uh, aristocratic sort of politician's clothes. And and there next to him is this trim, beautifully turned out naval officer. Mm. So
4: moving the story on in, so in 1936, he he suddenly becomes Mm. king. Mm. Um, uh, and Presumably, it was unexpected to him you know he didn't he wasn't he didn't he wasn't being kept in in touch with what was happening with his brother was he up until no up until the last moment and then there's this famous quote where he says i'm thoroughly unprepared for, for this was he thoroughly unprepared or would actually every second son of a, of a monarch been having to sort of learn the
1: ropes as they yes the well f- f- thoroughly unprepared is perhaps an exaggeration i think what he's really he's really saying is i don't want to do the job Right, I, I, I'm really a naval officer, and that's what I can do best. And I don't want to take on all these other responsibilities. I mean, Edward VIII, when he became king, was, was hardly a, mo- a model monarch. I mean, he his government soon began to believe that he wasn't reading state papers at all. That uh, that come back with you know, stains of wine glasses on them and you know, <laughs> clearly unread. Or uh, so I mean, we're not talking about it amazingly high standards here. Of course, George V had had high standards for, for reading state papers and keeping in touch with. His government and all the rest of it but I mean, the things he'd done and the experiences he's had of course made him um more or less adequately prepared i think it's a statement about his lack of confidence
4: a couple of years after he comes to power the, the the situation with germany becomes very difficult uh, and the appeasement policy mm, oh started yes. and 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 george is 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 a fan of appeasement isn't he uh, but that could have gone wrong for him presumably
1: but it could have not, except that most of the establishment were actually fans of appeasement. I think what we tend to forget, is it is obviously the, the, the beauty of hindsight, it is that um, the, the appeasement lobby, both in Britain and within, say, the Dominions, like Australia and um, Canada to some extent, um, even the United States, I mean, they were very strong, and they did seem, it did seem to be um, a, a popular policy. I mean, when Chamberlain comes back from Munich, waving his bit of paper... He's not booed, he's cheered by huge crowds. People are greatly relieved. It's like an enormous tension has been released. So appeasement um, for a while was very popular um, until, of course, it manifestly failed to work. It it then could have gone wrong, I suppose, uh, for George VI, except that everybody knew that he wasn't formulating policy. And I think the fact that he supports the appeasement policy is actually symptomatic of his being very loyal to his prime ministers and his different governments that he serves with. I mean, he was extremely loyal, of course, devoted to Churchill, and was slightly anxious when Attlee took over in forty-five as the new Labour prime minister. But he soon became really quite closely linked to to Attlee as well. He he thought he was, you know, a man of integrity trying to do the right thing. Perhaps not all of it he agreed with, but... So I think he's a very loyal person, and I think what he's doing is... um, Articulating government policy as he sees it, and he thinks that's his that's his his duty. His duty is not to criticise government policy; it's to support it. Mm.
4: So, how important was he in the war? Because we have these all the the, the, the main image we have of him is is of touring round yeah. bombed out cities with the Queen and and shaking hands and and generally expressing sadness, presumably about. I mean, was that significant? Did people respect that? Did people admire that? Was it was he important for morale?
1: I think he was, and I think he was because he did seem to be an ordinary... I know this sounds ridiculous for the for, for a king emperor to say he's an ordinary sort of person, but I think he did seem to be an ordinary sort of person to many people. I mean, there's this lovely story about him um, personally painting uh, lines in black paint on the baths in Buckingham Palace so that visitors wouldn't use too much hot water, you know, to help the war effort. Oh. You know, he... he um, He, 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 um, the family don't eat off gold plates or anything. I mean, it's um, and uh, they they refused to move to somewhere really safe, like um, I suppose Balmoral or Sandringham would be much safer. They stayed in Buckingham Palace, and Buckingham Palace was bombed. We must say, however, they didn't sleep there. They slept at Windsor mm. and came back to work at Buckingham Palace in the day. But I think it was terribly important, that, and particularly with, with Queen Elizabeth, who had this marvellous common touch. I mean, she wasn't an ordinary person. I mean, she was very much an aristocratic lady. But I think she had a capacity to link up with people and to empathise. And, and she says at one point, doesn't she, after Buckingham Palace has been bombed, at last I can look the East End in the face again. So, I think that was a, that was a, a a nice approach, and I think people appreciated it yeah so
4: the the very fact that they had suffered the same sort mm. travails as everyone else was was kind of am I right in thinking that they they underwent rationing in some way of yes, I think they did, yeah, which
1: presumably must
4: have been quite strange. For
1: it would have be quite quick. Absolutely. I mean, one can't imagine the Tsar of Russia going, rationing somehow in similar circumstances or... But, I mean, yes, I mean, as I say, the, 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 there was quite a puritanical streak really in the family. George VI didn't drink very much. Of course, he did smoke too much, which is why he eventually died prematurely. Um, he didn't bet on the horses, I don't think. He did enjoy shooting birds and animals in great numbers, but um, so did other members of the aristocracy and the um, Upper gentry,
4: yeah. So after the war, once the war had been won, he was, you know, they, they, he was stood on the balcony and everyone yeah. was, you know, waving and applauding. Um, but then it, he must have found himself in a very difficult situation because the world completely changed yes. after that. You know, there was a, there was a Labour government came in, and um, out and, and India, you know, with the, the whole question of, of what to do with India was was suddenly uppermost in, in people's. So how did he cope with that completely changed?
1: in a world history. Well I think I think he was the sort of person who did fret over things and I, and I know that he did fret over the fact that India was to be given its independence and that the world had changed and things weren't as they had been before but he was also and I don't know whether Queen Elizabeth plays a part in this I think he was also sufficiently pragmatic to see that this is how things were and once the Labour government had been elected um, they did not turn out to be the bloodstained bolsheviks of you know of right wing fantasy um, in fact they in many ways they were quite conservative i mean when when um India got its independence under labour of course in forty seven and Aaron Bevan, who's the you know the extreme left wing member of the cabinet um somebody says, well bevan, like everybody else um, hates the thought of giving up India, but there's no option so it's like it's more complicated than that, if you see what I mean. So, he, and also remember, George the sixth has worked during the war with many leading members of the Labour government because they've been in the coalition government. I mean, after he's been Deputy Prime Minister, Morrison's been there. Bevin, Bevin has been in the coalition government, so he's got to know them and has worked with them. And so they're often—it's not like a whole new set of faces and unknown people, um, which would have think. I think that would have made him more insecure. But he, he works quite well. He's, he's got a great capacity for, for working with people. He's quite good at, you know, mild jokes and sort of um, seeing a funny side of things. And yeah. and he always does his duty. If he says to read a paper and comment on it, he'll do it. Because I suppose he never, never had a chance to, to reign
4: in a period of normality, did he? I mean, he came no. to came to power in the whole abdication crisis when everyone thought the monarchy was in disarray. Then there was the Second World War and then the aftermath of the Second World War, and then he died. So he, he never he never had a period where I suppose it was just
1: like, a, you know, things were progressing as normal. No, he didn't really. He was born into a crisis, i oh, sorry, he, was, he became king in a crisis situation and that got worse and exploded into the Second World War. And then of course you had the crisis really of the post-war period. Which was about um, re- re- reconstructing British industry, um, getting the economy back on its feet, uh, facing up to the fact that empire was on the way out and the welfare state was on the way in, yeah. and um, this was an enormous change. Uh, but he coped with it. I mean, he he had taken an interest in the in, in the period when he was not when he was Duke of York, not um, not king. He had taken an interest in you know these boys' camps where where middle class and working class boys were gathered together um, annually to 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 sort of get to know each other more and to take part in joint activities and stuff like that. Um, I, I, I think he, he he was very obsessed with 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 ritual and, and um, correct uniforms and things. And you know, to that extent, he he probably um, didn't like some of the more e- some of the more egalitarian um, ideas behind the Labour government. Um, I mean, I think. He was very keen on deference in a modest sort of way, but it does seem to work. He, he, and the Labour government, and particularly he and Attlee, get on extremely well. I mean, they're both people who actually <laughs> the King doesn't talk loquaciously, certainly in public, because he still has a bit of a stammer. And Attlee doesn't talk loquaciously because he doesn't like doing it. I mean, he's a one word, you know, one liner, one word man, really. Mm. And they sort of get on. They're two not very loquacious people, really. Mm. Those boys' camps you mentioned,
4: yes. they seem quite curious. I was reading about them. They yeah. have thousands of people yeah, going to these. And, and he, it was a bit like scouts, wasn't it, yeah. I, I assume? Didn't he call himself the, the Chief... Well, I can't remember the was word. It, it wasn't yeah. Chief Scout, was it? No, no, but look, chief something yeah. um, that. That's quite a strange thing for, a, for, for a, a member of the royal family to be doing, isn't it, at that time? Or, 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 or
1: actually, is it? Oh, well, it, it is and it isn't. I mean, uh, the, the great thing about the British royal family is that it is managed just... You know, to keep to keep its uh, its head above water in terms of um, of not appearing to be completely reactionary and out of touch with everything. And I think there was a lot of poverty in the interwar period. I, I think the established when they established great worries in the interwar period is that we, they will that England Britain will have its own Bolshevik revolution. You know, the general strike was seen by many people in '26 as as a possible harbinger of a revolution. And there were people who wanted a revolution at that point. Mm-hmm. Syndicalists and others in the trade union movement, and someone on the left of the Labour Party and the Communist Party, of course. And, and I think that um, these the sort of—it's um, a bit noblesse oblige, isn't it? You, you, you—you you, um, know—you give some time to underprivileged uh, young people, hoping that that will make an impact on them. And I think the royal tours, which were undertaken by all members of um, George V's family, really, uh, and on which, of course George VI had, as Duke of York, had trouble often speaking. But I think these royal tours, both. Around Britain and also to to the Empire, the Commonwealth, are a very important part again of sort of cementing the relationship and showing that the monarchy has a human face. Mm. And
4: and that human face line, I suppose, is followed through by his by his daughter. Yeah. Uh, what can you see in the way that, that, that Queen Elizabeth's mm. reign has,
1: has demonstrated that she would have taken from her father? Was there any any particular aspects? Oh, absolutely! Way? I think there were several aspects. I mean, I, I think she's very much her father's daughter. I mean, he, he might have found P- Princess Margaret Rose a bit more sparky, and you know, she she would she could play the piano and do and mimic people. And Elizabeth is rather a serious old, older daughter, Princess Elizabeth. But I mean, I think she takes from him first of all the fact that. Um, that family life is terribly important, and that you must do the right thing, and that you must, above all, do your duty as monarch, and that you mustn't uh, push your own views particularly, but you must be there to, you know, to to, to warn, advise, and all the rest of it. The, the whole budget form, formula, um, and she does that, I think, extremely well. And the second thing is that she um, she takes very seriously her role as um, head of the Commonwealth. In fact, the position head of the Commonwealth is more or less created um, for her when she becomes queen as the, as the empire turned into the Commonwealth. And uh, so I even saw somebody arguing the other day in an article that um, but for Queen Elizabeth II, the Commonwealth might well have disintegrated and gone its own way in messy bits or chunks, uh, and she in a way has kept it together because she really, really believed in it. And she dedicated herself at the age of um, 21 in South Africa, I think, didn't she, to this great... E- Empire Commonwealth of which we are all part. Uh, she really believed in the concept of Empire Commonwealth and having things in common, good things in common, which um, would be useful for the for the nation's future to cherish. Okay.
4: Final question. Taking it back to where we started. Back to the King's Speech. Um, did, did Colin Firth get it right? Was it Was
1: the depiction that he, he provided of, of George VI <laughs> an accurate one? I think Colin Firth is, is a very, very good actor, of course. Um, I think he was perhaps a little bit more glamorous than George VI normally was and perhaps a bit more sparky. Um, but I think overall he did get it right. And I think particularly Jeffrey um, uh, Rush got Lionel Logue right. And when I wrote my biography of George VI, which, as you know, is coming out in the new edition in the new year, um, I, I did a lot of work, work trying to d- dig up the whole Lionel Logue business. Um, so the King's Speech wasn't a surprise to you, of course, at all. And I think he was an incredibly uh, interesting man. And, and the fact that he taught, uh, well, sorry, dealt with George VI on, on, on equal terms, more or less. And, you know, he had this Australian sort of, you know, and he didn't call him mate exactly, but, you know, he called him Bertie. Uh, and I think Colin Firth did a, a grand job, I think, um as I say, more glamorous than George VI actually was, but the essential insecurities and the bottled-up feelings come out. And um, I mean, George VI also, of course, before he got his, his speech uh, defects sorted out, in many ways, it was quite irascible. He, he could he could explode into sort of incoherent rages when he was a younger man because he couldn't express himself or felt frustrated. People didn't understand him, and I think that came over very well indeed.
2: and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Dennis Judd's feature on George VI is in the January issue of BBC History
0: magazine. His book, King George VI, has just been republished by Ivy Taurus. Now it's time for our historical trivia moment. This week's piece of trivia has been sent in by Will Koenig, who's a regular listener to the podcast out in Salem, Oregon. Will tells us that before independence, many streets in the Cambodian capital, Phnom Penh, were named after notable Frenchmen. Following the revolutions, civil wars and occupation by communist powers, the streets of the city now bear the names of former Cambodian kings and communist luminaries such as Mao Tse Tung and Kim Jong-il. However, two French street names remain. These are dedicated to Louis Pasteur and to the scientist Albert Calmette. Thanks for that, Will. If anyone would like to email in with further historical facts, we'll gladly read them out here, if they're true, of course, and give you a name check in return. Email us at podcast at with any curious historical facts. Our second interview is with Gus Casely-Hayford, a cultural historian and broadcaster. This month, Gus is presenting the BBC4 series Lost Kingdoms of Africa, which explores the history of a number of former African states, one of these is the Asante Kingdom in modern-day Ghana, which rose to prominence in the 18th century through its mineral wealth and involvement in the slave trade. As Gus is himself of partly Ghanaian descent, the Asante story has a special resonance for him. I caught up with Gus recently to find out more about this golden kingdom. So we're talking about here the Asante Kingdom. Yes. Whereabouts in Africa is that located? Okay. Where's that located? And the Asante, that
3: they are part of the Akan people, who um, are one of the major West African ethnic groups. And the Asante, that, they um, lived in the interior of what is today Ghana. and The coastal region was peopled by a group called the Fante. And um, just to the, to the north of them were their cousins, who they were very often at war with, the Asante. And the Asante were very different from the the Fanti in a variety of ways. They shared the base of a language, but in many other ways they were extremely different. Um, The Asante had um, huge wealth. Um, The Fanti, um, uh, because they were on the coast, that they were fishermen, and over a period of time that their traditions seemed to diverge and they grew to be very, very different and were very often at war.
0: And you, you mentioned the huge wealth of the Asante. Yes. Is that because of the gold they had in the area?
3: Yeah, the, this is a region which is very heavily forested. And the forest isn't just dense, but also because the weather, the intensity of the humidity is so great, it actually meant that um, they are very isolated populations. But beneath the soil was incredibly rich deposits of gold and this is a really really high quality gold as well and so from very very earliest periods people were aware that the people who lived in this region in the forests that they that they could trade this incredible gold and it's traded north across the desert and south to the coast Um, and the Asante, that they grow up in this region amongst a number of different ethnic groups who are all competing for control of this gold.
0: And um, when do the Asante first enter the historical record, do we know?
3: Um, well, it's difficult. I mean, the, the, the Portuguese, that they arrive um, on the coast um, in, 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 in the late 14th century. And um, they have reports of a number of kingdoms and it may well be that the 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 forefathers of the Asante were already um, in the region um, that the Asante came to inhabit but at that period the main kingdom in the interior were the Denchira and the Denchira, they're very very powerful and incredibly ruthless, they're not loved by the people that they rule over they rule over a confederation of smaller kingdoms and they do so with an incredible, sort of ruthless kind of authoritarianism. And um, people, I mean, because they're isolated, um, um, they do rely upon the Denshira for, for defence um, and in lean times they rely on them for, for, for resources. Um, but in return for that, the dentiera that they... They demand a huge amount, gold particularly, um, but also men troops um, to fight the um, ever expanding ambitions of the, of the Denchira to, to widen their, their empire. And one of the kingdoms um, or one of the small kingships that sit under the Denchira are the Asante. And they grow tired along with all the others of this bullying administration. And um, there is a period when, basically, that there are enough people within the Asante to begin to feel that possibly they could take on the Denchira.
0: Do we know why it was the Asante, rather than any of the other kingdoms, that actually took this step in the end?
3: Um, I think it's a period in which... um, Many of these, uh, many, many of these, um, these groups are actually they're actually held together by quite fragile infrastructure because these territories are isolated. The um, the terrain is incredibly difficult to to navigate, um, and so politically, it is possible to to cut off. To cut off people it is possible to challenge um, the status quo, but having the guts to do it when you have um, a state like the Denchira who are incredibly ruthless that they would just literally wipe out their their enemies and they would enslave um, enslave anyone they could and you know put them um, they, they would put them into forced labor and that the, the consequences were so. Dreadful that many people just wouldn't take them on. But the Asante, that they are ruled by Osai Tutu, who mm. is a young man, and he basically just feels the time is right. You know, I'm going to take these people on. And what he actually uses, he is not just um, military might, but he uses... Um, diplomacy. He uses um, a, a chap called a confo who is, he's a sort of um, Peter Mandelson type right. figure, you know, a bit of a sort of spin doctor. And what he manages to do is to gradually build um, a confederation, a coalition of these disaffected substates. And they all begin to stand against the the, the, the Denshira. They begin one by one to say, we, we're not going to stand for it anymore. And when there are enough of them, they take on the Denshira. And the consequences of losing are, you know, this is zero sum. You lose and you will be annihilated. But along with their incredible sort of... Um, 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 skills at diplomacy they have they are great military tacticians and they beat the denture and they drive them out of the area and what the Asante then realize is that they have a very loose confederation that is built built up basically because of their shared dislike of the denture they don't really share very much more than that, and they what they want to do is to build a coherent state, and so that happens in a number of ways, and they are really clever. They they decide that they're going to clear the forest. Um, they're going to they're going to use the the the. the, the, the the, the, the land that they're going to um, to get from the cleared forests to grow crops that will mean that they can support um, larger numbers of of, of of people that they're also going to bring new people into those cleared areas to then um, make up a bigger army so that they can protect um, uh, their, their region but additionally that what they want to do is deploy those people into um, things like gold mining and actually working the gold mines. And what the Asante are even more clever at is saying that only the Asantahini can hold wealth. You know, this is a period in which there isn't really fluid currency. Mm. That the only people who own things are the aristocracy and the Asantahini is at the of this this pyramid and so it's very difficult to challenge the the growth of this state it just continues to grow accumulating new states and, and forcing these vassal states into into a kind of slavery and these people would work on the land clearing the land growing the Asante state bit by bit incrementally it becomes almost unassailable.
0: And the Asante gold is that eventually find its way into, say, European markets.
3: Well, the Europeans that they arrive on the coast, the Portuguese, um, they are eventually displaced by, um, you know, the, the French and, and the Swedes and um, and then the British, and they realise that this bit of the coast is is very rich in gold and that it's worth. All of the, the problems, the encroachments, the ongoing encroachments of the, of the Asante, the difficult weather. Um, and so they, they begin to trade via their coastal allies, the Fanti, with the Asante for gold. And the gold that comes out of that region is of an incredibly high quality and huge amounts of it too.
0: But the Asante also then become involved in slavery as well and the slave
3: trade. Yeah, because the Asante that they are trying to increase um, uh, increase their their region, they realise that the gold production is also it, it demands lots of manpower, and the only way to um, um, the only way to, to, to man their their armies, their their gold fields, their farms, is by is by deploying slaves and um, so they expand and they they they, they, they raid their, their neighbors and they use their the people that they capture as slaves. But over a period of time they get so good at this that there's actually a surfeit of labor. And they begin to they begin to then trade that labour. And that labour becomes um, that becomes something which is as lucrative, almost, as the, the gold trade.
0: And the labour, the slave labour that they're trading, do these people then end up in the Americas somewhere?
3: Well, the, 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 over a period of time that the um, the British who consolidate their position on the coast, that they, re- because of the way in which the trade winds and the, the tides operate, that that they usually sail out from the west coast of Africa west toward the Caribbean. They don't, they don't sail direct toward Europe. Mm. So there's a trading triangle and what usually would what usually would fill the boats um, between West Africa and the Caribbean would be people. Um, it would be Slaves who would have been captured in the interior in the Asante region, and they would travel down the the, the the trade routes to the coast, held usually in castles, huge castles like Cape Coast, which had almost like on an industrial scale, sort of um, areas in in their basement, which which are appalling when you go and you see them, very dark dungeons where people would be held for sometimes weeks at a time, and then from there they go past through something that would be called the Gate of No Return, onto boats, and then from there onto ships, and then out to the Caribbean. And this became an incredibly lucrative trade. You know, possibly half a million, maybe more, people travelled through Cape Coast on their way to the Caribbean. And uh, um, it made... The Europeans, the British, you know, incredibly wealthy. Um, but at the same time, throughout the 18th century, that there were a number of people who looked at this industry and just said, it's just plainly wrong, morally wrong. And, you know, in, this was a period in which expansion, money, adventure was obviously kind of, it was. Important to 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 to, to, Brit- to Britain, but the actual kind of uh, the actual moral arguments yeah. seemed to win the day, and um, you know at the turn of the uh, uh, of the nineteenth century, there is this huge move to end slavery and to outlaw it, and the outlawing of of slavery completely. Um, it destabilises the ecology, the the the, 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 the 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 local balance on the Gold Coast. Because for the Asante, their whole economy has now been... ..has been refocused around supplying slaves to the coast.
0: So the Asante essentially prevented the British from having to go into the interior of Africa to get the slaves. They could wait on the coast and Asante would, send, would bring them the slaves.
3: Well, if you imagine that these incredibly thick forests um, um, and the weather um, the strength of the Asante army that they form a kind of formidable barrier between the coast and the interior and it it is very even with superior weaponry it is difficult for the British to to take on the Asante and they do Um, um, but I think over a period of time as the British begin to feel more confident about their place on the coast, that they begin to assert themselves. And the Asante get incredibly frustrated at the idea of their old trading relationship with the British being challenged and then dismantled. And so they, you know, they, try, to, um, they try to continue to trade slaves even though it's been outlawed, um, the British blocked them in a, 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 in a, in a, a number of instances. Um, and then, out of frustration, they actually, um, the Asante, that they, um, they kidnapped some Europeans um, from the coast, um, from a place called Elmina. And um, this results in the British actually putting their foot down and forcing the the Asante to um, to acknowledge that it really is the end of slavery, and they do that by force.
0: So the, the British go into the Asante kingdom, and, and am I right? They eventually colonise it. Well, in eighteen um, in
3: 1873, um, the British that they do eventually enter the Asante. Uh, into Kumasi, the the, the capital, um, and the Asante, realizing that the British have super, superior numbers, weaponry, that they try at the very last moment to negotiate, but by then it's just too late, mm. and um, the Asantahini, the king's palace, is burnt to the ground, and. Before this has happened, the kingdom's already begun to unravel because the economy's in tatters in a sense that the political balance between the king and all of the dignitaries and the aristocracy that surround the king and the merchants that support them is all been about slavery and it's been about um, the old system with the unraveling of that that the Asantehinis power and the respect that he had is beginning to be questioned. And when the British enter Kumasi, raising the palace to the ground, that it seems almost like it's, it is the beginning of the end. But what the British are very clever at is that they don't then, they don't then declare the Kumasi and the Asante area um, to be a protectorate. They withdraw and they actually then declare the coastal area a protectorate. But what they allow is for the Asante region to continue to unravel. And what happens is that it draws down a lot of the, the mercantile expertise, the wealth, into the British region. People want to begin rather than to continue mm-hmm. to trade with the now what seem like moribund Asante. They want to begin to to think about investing in the British that who seem to be the
0: future. So once they've been able to go and attack the capital, really the Asante's respect is going to be diminished because they couldn't fight off the British at that moment. Exactly,
3: exactly. But at this time that it feels like it's the end that the Asante kingdom is going to unravel. Um, and there are consecutive fairly weak Asantehines, kings, um and so even people within the court are beginning to question the viability of the kingdom. But then a woman, Yasantiwa, she has been a member of the royal family but hasn't really um, asserted herself before this time. But she steps forward and she petitions for... Um, a close relative of hers, Prempe, to become the Asantehene, and what Prempe is a young man, very young, and that would seem to be kind of not experienced enough. But he is someone who wants to rebuild the Asante stool as it once was, and he wants to focus it again as it was focused originally around the traditions that were set up by the founder of the Asante state, Osaitutu. Tutu. And what Osaitutu Tutu had been very careful in doing is bringing all of those disparate states together around a number of symbols, things like a golden stool, kente, drumming. These traditions were the things around which the original state actually rallied. And once again... The Asante state begins to grow confident and it looks to these old symbols as a way of reviving itself. And it seems like for the British, you know, they're thinking, gosh, we thought they were dead in the water. And suddenly it looks like the Asante are growing again in confidence. Um, And You know, unfortunately unfortunately what what happens is that the Asante are unable to actually um are unable to to deliver and the British realizing that they may well they may well be kind of in a position where the balance might shift against them, that they again put pressure on the Asante state. But this time it is it is devastating and it does kind of completely um, mean the end of the, of, of 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 the kingship, and what they they do is to remove the Asantahini He's he's um, not just de but he's sent away, um, and for a period of time that they try to administer the the, the stool themselves um, before reinstating it, but then as a stool that is basically just centered around the capital Kumasi it's not really about the state and uh, what the British realized though is that even though the Asante state has been completely devastated it's no longer what it was either in terms of geography or economics it still seems to have a kind of residual emotional pull for the local people. And partially that is because the symbols that Osai Tutu, the first Asantahini, had established of Kente, of drumming, uh, but particularly of the Golden Stool, that they still seem to, to be of importance. And so they try, the British, to, um, to, um, to confiscate the Golden Stool. They asked many times for the Golden school, Stool to be given up and they'd simply refuse. And in the end, they give up a fake one, but they never relinquish the true one. And in a way that when Osai Tutu actually established the Asante Stool, what he was very clever, he and Akonfo Annotche, this sort of Peter Manderson figure, what they're very clever in doing is creating a kind of distance between the holder of the stool and the stool itself. It's the stool that is the important thing. That's where the continuity is invested. And so much of a Asante culture is about stories. It's about history. And that history is invested in objects like cloth and like drums but particularly in the stool, so by keeping the stool, they actually felt that they had kept, in a way, the integrity of the kingship alive. And so, even without a king, without a state, without the wealth that they once had, they could still rally around this symbol and feel that the Santi state endured. And does it still endure today, in
0: some respects?
3: The interesting thing is that the British realised fairly quickly that to administer a state like that, probably the best way of doing it was to reinstate something quite similar. Mm. And so over a period of time, they did reinstate the stool. And if you go today, it's not just that the Asante stool is is powerful and it's loved, but it works as a political and an economic unit. That the Asante stool still gets money from the gold that is mined in that region. And the Asante goldfields are incredibly rich even today. Um, I had an opportunity to go into one of the gold mines and the gold that is the gold that is drawn from the mines every day produces huge ingots. You know, that these ingots are like a million dollars each, and that on a single day you can see two or three of these that are 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 produced. And that, you know, I've sat and watched the gold being poured and held one of these ingots, and you you get a sense that this isn't just about contemporary economics, there's still a pride in the history that's connected to the gold that's drawn out of the soil. There is an idea that that very place is special. Um, And I suppose in The Golden Stool is a continuity, not just a connection to the gold, but an an idea that the actual authority of the Asantahini, the rootedness to that place is something which is fundamental to that state and that not even in their darkest hours when the British had seemed to have overrun them, when um, their economy was smashed, um, not even then was the golden stool given up and that is about the integrity of those beliefs of that history.
0: What do you see as the legacy of, of this state? Because obviously there's quite a, a negative aspect with all the slavery, but also clearly they have quite strong aspects too and have managed to stand up for the British for quite a long time. So how would you view their legacy?
3: I think their legacy... I mean, if you think about, um, you know, in Britain that... I mean, the, there aren't... G- Ghana is not, in terms of numbers, that large an African country, but... If you look around the world at the influence of of Ghanaians, Kofi Annan, you know, if you think about in in, in Britain, politicians like you know um, 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 Boateng, you know that there is a there is a kind of a tradition of of people who have a kind of um, a skill and eloquence that I think is rooted, connected to the way in which history, in which telling of stories, in which um, the keeping of of folklore is so important and I think in a way that the, the legacy that against this incredible landscape, this very, very difficult environment, against all of those odds, what they were so keen to do was to keep alive the story the history and in Ghanaians today there is still that sense that history that story is absolutely vital and so even for those slaves that were cast out over the ocean into the new world the thing that still seems to survive Mm. are those stories that you know you travel in in um, the Caribbean or the New World. And it is the stories, you know, Brer stories, the stories of, of, uh, of Nancy. These are stories that actually traveled with them, uh, you know, with slavery. And in a way, the legacy is the story, the history. And I think for a people who began with stories, I think, you know, that's very fitting.
0: I I remember those stories when I was growing up, I had no idea they came from Ghana
3: originally. Yes, those are stories that travelled with slavery and if you think about so much slavery was about um, completely trying to eradicate the past and getting people to completely be be inculcated with a kind of Euro-American sensibility. Some of it was just so important to those people that they held on to it, and those stories of it 's not just of origin but the Anansi stories particularly of of tricksters of of railing against um, possibility and authority that in a way that is partially the um, the asante way of of trying to find ways out of a situation and you know, if you think about the Golden Stool, that even when they did have their backs up against the, the wall, that they, they did manage to, to find a way to, to,
0: to survive. That was Gus casely hayford Look out for Lost Kingdoms of Africa on BBC4 this month. Gus has also written a piece on the Asante Kingdom in our January issue. Well, that's all for this week's episode. I hope you'll join us again next week where we'll be discussing consumer laws in early modern Germany and how ancient Egypt impacted on Victorian Britain. BBC History magazine's weekly podcast is recorded in Bristol and produced by the rambunctious Dave Gibson. Thanks for listening.